we actually allowed the US DOJ to come and write articles. And every article that was discussed was reviewed by the Department of Justice. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 92 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Angela Zora Medina from the University of Chicago about her research into how transitioning to a U.S.-style adversarial model of criminal procedure, one controlled by the prosecutor in defense rather than by the judge in court, successfully decreased the number of inmates detained before their legal trials in Latin America by 20%, but for very different reasons than had previously been reported. Here's Angela Zora Medina. Hi, I'm Angela Zora Medina. I'm from Colombia. I was born and raised in the capital, Bogota. And in Bogota or in Colombia in general, it's different to the U.S. or European countries. Basically, you go to university where you're born and raised. So that's how I end up going to Los Andes University in Bogota. And at the beginning, I started as an economist. Uh, I did my undergrad in econ. And I wanted to also do something more applied. I'm always afraid that what I'm going to end up doing, no one is going to read it and it's not going to have any applicability. So I decided to also go to law school. And it was in law school in Colombia over the last year of law school. We have to be uh, public interest lawyers uh, in different in the different areas, civil law, administrative law, criminal law. And everyone tried to avoid criminal law because while over this time in Christmas, all the law areas in the country go to like a literal period of vacations, criminal law never stops. So no one wants to get stuck in criminal law. Uh, But the day that we have to sign up, uh, my computer presented a failure, like a problem, and I couldn't actually end up signing up if what I wanted that was administrative law. When they were able to fix my account, the only thing that was available was in criminal law. So I ended up being a public defender. And that was like an interesting turn of of events. I thought that I would be like a lawyer that would more focus on uh, mergers and acquisitions, corporate lawyer. Um, I didn't want to go and litigate. And then one day I was preparing some data because people at the law school were super excited that they have someone with econ training doing like data work. So they said like, let's get used of her uh, abilities. And I found this graph that showed how after uh, Latin America changed their criminal justice system uh, and copied the US system, most of the countries presented a boom in incarcerations. And to me, that was striking because the idea of this new criminal justice system was that it's going to be less punitive and was going to protect more the rights of defendants. So I got obsessed with understanding what was causing the boom. So I came to become a criminal justice scholar by accident because of a computer failure. And then I just became so passionate about it. Um, And now I just work on trying to find ways to translate research into public policies that can improve people's conditions in prison in Latin America. While completing her doctorate of juridical science at Yale Law School, Angela conducted her research into the impacts of the widespread reforms of criminal justice procedures that took place during the 1980s and 90s throughout Latin America, 
Previously unaware of these relatively recent shifts in legal policies, Doug and I wanted to learn what led to these changes and how people there are criminally prosecuted. During the Cold War between the 1960s and the 1980s, most Latin American countries went from weak democratic states to military dictatorships. The only two countries that didn't have military dictatorships were Venezuela and Colombia. And Colombia had this weird kind of dictatorship that was more an arrangement between parties. It's known as the example of democracy in the region. And Colombia has also played a strategic role uh, in Latin America because it has always been an ally of the U.S. So a lot of policies that enter to Latin America from the U.S. come through Colombia, which facilitates the diffusion of language. So when we transitioned to democracy over the 1990s, what happened was there was a shift in the concerns or the problems that Latin American democracies were facing. An increasing crime, like common crime, started to appear while before we were worried about guerrilla crimes or other types of uh, crimes related with military dictatorships. So in the 1990s, when we transitioned to democracy and we created a new constitutions that recognized rights that didn't exist before and tried to avoid uh, abuses by the state, there was this conversation about how can we limit the power of the state to detain people arbitrarily. And what happened there was there was this generation of lawyers, legal scholars, that came to the U.S. during the 1980s to U.S. law schools and uh, were trained in the U.S. and then came back to Latin America. So a lot of their ideas uh, were influenced by the U.S. legal scholarship. And they went to this story that the U.S., despite all the problems, was a better model than what we had. So there was an alliance between these elites and the U.S. agenda on transnational crime that appears with Bill Clinton, I think it was 1995, at the U.N. convention, claiming that now, after the end of the Cold War, we needed to increase transnational crime cooperation. And Latin America, as a focus of drug production and exporting of drugs and stuff like that uh, became one of the main regions in which the U.S. wanted to influence criminal justice systems to keep kind of a close relationship in that area. So I think there was an alignment there between uh, what Latin American elites thought that uh, was the best path to Latin America after the end of dictatorships and the U.S. interest in the region. And what ended up happening today is that uh, the amazing part is that under these new models that restrain more the power of the state is that we have higher levels of prisoners than what we have over the 1980s or 1970s when dictatorships were on the rise. Across Latin America, Justice Administration and its reform have routinely entered into the public agenda through citizens working in their own countries, but using a conceptual and operational framework largely established by international aid agencies. For example, in 1985, the U.S. Congress passed legislation authorizing justice reform programs in Latin America, leading the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, to invest billions of dollars into expanding our adversarial model of criminal procedures, as Angela describes next. 
the U.S. was really involved in the process of making the reforms, but there's a lot of variation in Latin America. So we have some countries like Argentina, their relationship with the U.S. hasn't been that close as other countries as Colombia. So in those cases, what happened there was that the influence was mainly done through money. So the U.S. basically funded the entire reform. And even today, uh, they continue to fund these type of reforms through transnational cooperation programs. So USAID was basically the source of money to transform the criminal justice system in Latin America, because basically we needed to build new buildings to have these public oral hearings before the judge just has an office and they do everything with a, a secretary and type everything and that was it. Now we need a space where people can come, where we can have cameras uh, if the press wants to come in. So we needed to create a lot of new infrastructure that we didn't have and that was one of the main problems to adapt the system. And in the case of Colombia, that was really interesting because we actually, our, our relationship with the U.S. is so dependent for the Plan Colombia. That was is a major counter-terrorist funding program in which the U.S. helps Colombia to fight terrorism and uh, narco-traffic. But that became part of our budget as a nation. So in our case, the U.S. had more leverage to pressure particular forms of writing these laws. I think you have cases like Argentina, where most of the influence came through uh, funding. And then you have cases like Colombia, where we actually allowed the U.S. DOJ to come and write articles. And every article that was discussed was reviewed by the Department of Justice. Judiciary systems evolve, as is true with the adversarial and inquisitorial criminal procedures that Angela examined. While the adversarial system started out in England as a system in which juries could decide cases without any inculpatory or exculpatory evidence, the admissibility and quality of evidence, as well as the knowledge of jurors, improved over the centuries. The inquisitorial systems of continental Europe, however, have evolved with no clear division between the functions of the prosecution and the judge, creating challenges for administering the law. Up next, Angela shares her thoughts on the other distinguishing characteristics of these two approaches. You can trace the roots of these two systems, the adversarial system and the inquisitorial system, from colonial times. So basically, you'll see an inquisitorial system or approach in those countries that were under the power of uh, continental Europe empires. And then from the U.S. under the British Empire, you will see this adversarial system. So in the inquisitorial model, what they're trying to find in the criminal process is the truth, as an absolute truth, right? So it doesn't matter who is in charge of each one of the steps in the process, because the prosecutor is there to find the truth, not to charge someone or to make a case or build a case against someone. Usually in those type of models, the prosecutor and uh, the judge have two roles. They can be investigators and they can adjudicate punishment. Uh, and in an adversarial system, we believe that it doesn't make any sense to try to look for an absolute truth. So the best thing that we can do is open the debate. So we have two parties and an impartial party that is going to take the decision about who make a better case or who was more convincing. In this case, the prosecutor is actually in charge of building the case against another person. And since there's going to be a debate, 
We want to make it an oral system so we can have people arguing in front of a judge. And we want to make those trials public so people can go and see who did a better case. So you can have, in some cases, you have juries instead of uh, the judge deciding who made a better case. And in, in an inquisitorial system, that doesn't make any sense because we're just, the file reveals the truth of what happened. In practice, what happens is that, of course, if you are the prosecutor, the judge that collected all the evidence... And then uh, you're going to evaluate how well you did in that work or that process of collecting evidence. It's hard to be impartial about your own work. So the claim has been that when you have prosecutors or judges having a dual role as adjudicators of punishment and in charge of the investigation, uh, you're going to end up having more convictions, a more punitive criminal justice system rather than in an adversarial U.S. model where you at least give the defense a chance to orally argue, even if in practice you're going to end up avoiding trial by using plea bargaining. Even in the best of circumstances, getting access to the data that Angela required for her analysis is no easy task. Requiring patience for obtaining the data, perseverance for cleaning it up, and dedication to learning what stories the data tell, as Angela explains after this short break. This episode of Parsing Science is brought to you by Figshare, a free-to-use cloud-based platform for storing and sharing your research outputs. Upload your tabular data, images, 3D scans, videos, and more to Figshare to get credit for all your research. And if you're a fan of podcasts, check out Figshare's podcast, School of Batman, where we ask academics to use their research to help Batman fight crime. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to Parsing Science. Here again is Angela Zorro Medina. I got so obsessed with this project too because I thought no one works on this because the data is not good data. But if I can create a good data set so people can come and start exploring these kind of things, we can put academia as a consultant to the service of the Global South uh, in cases where there's not much money to research on these topics. And it's also politically unpopular to dedicate resources to improve prisoners' conditions. And in Colombia, we have a constitutional right to request data from any organization, state organization. So I remember at the beginning, when I was still an undergrad, I used to go to the IMPECT, that is the organization that is in charge of prisoners in Colombia, and I used to go there and basically I had to have coffee with uh, the people that was in charge of the statistical area and listen to their stories. And that's how they end up letting me see in their computers, like what the data looked like, what's the type of data they had. And then it required me to get my hands a little bit dirty talking to people in prison. So how should I make sense of this data? What are the type of prisoners that you get? Uh, how is the process working? When they explain to me how they decide which prisoners go to each parts of the different centers. So it did require me to abandon my comfort position of I will just do data work and I stay at my home and then just have to go outside to understand what it means and what were the problems and limitations of the data. So then I started presenting these uh, legal requests. In, in Colombia, we have this, uh, we have an, uh, an ID that identifies you as a lawyer. 
So I usually write that ID number. And because they see that I'm a lawyer and um, they, they really didn't want to give us the data, but I push it so much that now, like, I think they're used to me sending them uh, long emails. They have even sent people to my house with the physical data. So I signed them documents uh, that prove that they give me the data uh, so they can cover in case we go into a legal battle for the data. So the first thing was that uh, for that period of time, like 2004 and 2008, I remember having these conversations with the person that was in charge of creating data and entries and releases have to make sense of pretrial detainees and convicted population. So he did some checks and things didn't add up. So it didn't make sense. That data was weird. We didn't know what happened, but it was crazy that as a country, we don't know how many people entered prison like in four or five years. We don't know what happened there. And I was like, I will think that if we will keep track on something, is the number of prisoners. It's like you need to make sure that you have all the prisoners um, that you need to have, that you're supposed to have. So I have those numbers, but after checking with them, those numbers uh, don't make any sense. Colombia's prisons are a reflection of the various conflicts that have affected the country's unified prison system over the last half century. So while pretrial detention is a central issue to criminal justice reforms, it also has implications for Colombia's already overcrowded jails, which, unlike in the United States, house both detainees as well as convicted people. Here's what Angela had to say about this complex and often dangerous tension. So we have paramilitary groups and we have guerrilla groups. And they're located in different parts of the country. So when we were created the prisons and we were starting to arresting, convicting people from both groups, at the beginning, we were allocating them without following a clear logic. And what ended up happening was there were a lot of conflicts because there were basically groups that were fighting against each other. So we learned it that, oh, people that come from guerrilla have to go to particular prisons and people that are from paramilitary groups have to go to other prisons. And I think that logic extends to the entire allocation of prisoners in Colombia is we have such limited space, physical space to help people that we have to prioritize uh, how to allocate people in ways that we can control potential conflicts inside prisons, especially since we have a deficit of guards. So they will outnumber them. I mean, in, in Colombia, there are parts of the prison that uh, guards don't even go in because those are controlled by the prisoners. So if you're going to have those type of prisons, you need to make sure that at least their organized criminal government, it's not going to create imbalances that create violence inside prison. So those kind of things, like talking to people and learning their logic, they're saying like, I need to combine pretrial detainees with convicted prisoners because of the types of crimes. If I put a sex offender with other that is on pretrial detention with other people on pretrial detention, they're going to kill him. So I prefer to put him in a place where he is with other sex offenders, even if I'm mixing pretrial population and convicted population. So they're always thinking about how to control violence inside prison, and that's the rule. But those things, like, no one tells you that. The data doesn't tell you that. The code books don't tell you that. And then you go and talk with guards and they explain to you all these nuances. 
Previous research examining the impacts of judicial reforms in Latin America primarily compared the raw number of pretrial detainees in prison before reforms to that after. Having worked closely with the data and understanding the context of the prison system, Angela knew that there must be more to the story. Here, in explaining her study's main findings, she describes how the numbers were hiding an important consequence of these reforms. I mean, it was so successful in Latin America because of the high levels of pretrial detention. And while people have some strong feelings about if the final goal of the criminal justice system should be procedural efficiency, everyone is on board about pretrial detainees should not be held there for uh, long periods of time, and we should try to reduce the use of prison uh, in this population since they're still presumed innocent. So what people used to do was just do a pre-post analysis of descriptive statistics and just saying, look, we used to have, I don't know, 20 prisoners in pretrial detention, and now we have 10. This means that this is working. But when we look at data, uh, most of the data that we have, we basically just see like snapshots in different periods of time. So I look at the snapshots uh, every six months because that's the most frequent report that the impact generates. So basically the impact is going to give us uh, how many people in pretrial detention were in January and then how many people in pretrial detention were in June. But they're not going to tell us about the influx of people, right? How they're rotating. What I end up asking uh, myself was like, okay, now we're having fewer people in pretrial detention. Every time that I look at the number of people that is in prison uh, without a conviction, it seems that it's declining. But uh, it seems that we also have a faster pace in convicting people. So what if what's happening is just that these people enter uh, to prison and then they just transform into convicted prisoners at a faster pace than what they used to be? And that's why we see them as pretrial detainees in January, but we don't see them as pretrial detainees in June. So that's when I started looking for admission rates uh, of pretrial detainees. And when I tested what was happening with the admission rates of pretrial detainees, I saw that that was increasing. So basically, I said I need to test if this is related with the release of people from pretrial detention for the pretrial detention condition. And the way I defined released is you just stop being in prison as pretrial detainee. So it could be that we set you free or it could be that you're now a convicted person uh, since I don't have data to know if this person was released or not. So what I found was that the release rate was also increasing and that actually the release rate was higher than the admission rate. So they both were increasing, but the release rate outweighs the admission rate. So that's when I realized that what was happening was that the pretrial detention population in prison was decreasing just because we were releasing them faster or convicting them faster, but that we were using this figure in more people than what we used to do before. So we were not actually decreasing the use of pretrial detention. We were increasing it. It's just that now we're faster in deciding what to do with these people after uh, we put them in prison. There are three jointly necessary and sufficient conditions to establish causality. The first, temporal sequencing, means that the cause must come before the effect. 
Second, the relationship between cause and effect cannot be explained by chance alone. And third, other intervening or unaccounted for changes to the outcome of interest must be ruled out. To address the latter two of these concerns, Angela created placebo and counterfactual conditions based on real data to test and rule them out. Economists nowadays are so skeptical of people claiming causal inference studies. So one of the things that someone suggested was like, even if you have this clean identification strategy, we still don't believe you until you take another variable that you think that could not be affected by this reform and show us that there's no effect. So basically, it was just try to create a fake treatment or a fake reform and show us that you do not observe the exactly same effects. And the idea behind it, which I love it, was to try to change the role and trying to show that your results were created by chance. So basically, you're trying to bet against your own work and try to find a case in which even after you finding the significance and everything looks perfect, you can replicate those findings in something that doesn't make any sense. So I try to look a lot of literature about, so what's the gold standard about doing placebo test in these experimental settings? And there's nothing. There's no gold standard. So it's basically you try to come up with something that makes sense and try to convince people that this works. So the first one that I thought was the pretreatment. So try to see if I can, like using exactly the same strategy, but during a different period, I observe the same differences. And the logic is if I observe the same differences is because those groups were different and not because the reform actually matter. And the second one was just try to randomly to use different municipalities uh, in different stages. So I will put Bogota and Medellin in the same groups and then just like randomly create these groups and then show that even after I use 100 different random combinations, there's no way that I can replicate my own results. And the logic there is that it's not that I was lucky finding these significance effects, because basically with every type of arrangement or um, distribution of the treatment, I could have gotten the same, but that really an effect occurred and that it can be attributed to the reform. Angela's criminal justice research utilizes and integrates her experiences as an economist, a lawyer, and a sociologist. And no one of these perspectives would have been likely to have led to the important findings realized through this project. So Ren and I were curious to hear how she blends these diverse disciplinary backgrounds into her work. So I talk to econ people, I talk to lawyers, and I talk to sociologists. So I think I'm, I'm just like, it's hard for me to define. When I'm talking to sociologists, I feel like I'm an econ person because I'm capable to think exactly the way they think about theory. When I'm with econ people, I feel that I'm a sociologist because I'm like, no, we need to think this beyond the statistical part. And then when I'm with lawyers, sometimes I'm thinking, oh, I'm like a combination of econ and sociology, but not a lawyer person. So it's kind of a triple imposter syndrome (laughs) because I feel that having a food in every field makes it harder to feel like one of them, but also gives an advantage of there's always a new 
set of models, eyes, or methods that I can bring to the table and start like a conversation. So I think that the fact that I have rotated through so many disciplines and I have created networks in each one of those disciplines have helped me to, when I'm with sociologists, I'm capable to bring what econ people is thinking about it, what is relevant there, how they're doing it, and then how can we make a contribution in both sciences. But I think that the ultimate goal to do this is not to feel or think that what we are aiming with research is just to advance a particular discipline, but to think why do we care about doing research in particular topics is because we're trying to understand or to make a contribution into our understanding of society. And I believe that we are trying to improve society from academia or from research, uh, practical research. So I think that to be able to have a real impact in society, we need to have conversations with each other. That was Angela Zoro Medina discussing her open access article, The Failed War on Pretrial Detention, Evidence from a Quasi-Experimental Reform, which she shared on October 23, 2020, to the preprint server Social Science Research Network. You'll find a link to the paper at parsingscience.org e92, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discussed during the episode. Do you have compelling stories you want to share about your own science? If so, make a Parsing Science-style podcast about your research through our new project, Science Pods. Just record a few stories about your work, and within a couple of minutes, you'll have a custom-made digital audio file, along with the tools for sharing it with the world. Get started today at sciencepods.com. Next time, in episode 93 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Luke Cuddy from Southwestern College's philosophy program about a video game called The Witness, which presents players with a multitude of increasingly sophisticated puzzles. Luke investigated the infamous frustration often invoked by the game is perhaps resulting from a theory of knowledge built into it, both explicitly and implicitly, through enigmatic taped recordings, which, when accessed in the game, are played aloud. I'd basically just point to the to the depth of philosophical reasoning that I think can make people question their assumptions, even scientific assumptions that a philosopher would question. And those can be really valuable to research. We hope that you'll join us again.